Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is 49 degrees, 712 in the Twin Cities right now. Uh, right now, we are joined by Dr. Kuresh Rasek. He is uh, the treatment specialist and founder of Evo Health and Wellness. And I hope I'm pronouncing Evo correctly, doctor. Uh, this is an alternative treatment program for substance abuse in California. Uh, did I pronounce your, um, your organization correctly? Uh, you did. It's Evo Health and Wellness. That's Great. Correct. Okay. And, and I know there was a little confusion about the time, so I appreciate your being flexible and coming on with this right now. Let me ask you, I mean, there's been so much work done in this. And of course, uh, Minnesota is uh, famous for being sort of the land of, of 10,000 treatment centers. W- what is different about your treatment center? I'm, I'm curious. Uh, so um, I'll give you the short version of that answer. Um, addiction treatment um, ha- for decades now has really been approaching the problem through the lens of the substance or the behavior mm-hmm. as the primary focus. Um, and so alcoholism has been about alcohol and the solution has been uh, abstinence or working towards abstinence. Um, and while some people absolutely get better through that process, statistically, we're really failing our population. And so Evo Health and Wellness is a response to uh, this really poor um, outcome that, that the industry as a whole has been delivering. Our approach is to, to go back and say, well, what is it that creates the vulnerability for some people to fall prey to addiction as opposed to other people who integrate substances or behaviors into their life um, and are able to have healthy uh, relationships with those substances? Um, so we look at those vulnerabilities. We look to see what is it that led to the addiction um, and to address that problem as opposed to focusing on the symptom of the problem, which is the substances or the behavior. Right. And, and at Evo Health in, in, in California, are you getting people coming to you who've been to other treatment centers and have relapsed? That's a big chunk of folks that actually do come to us. Um, there's, you know, one of the other real problems as an industry, and, and I've been doing this for a while and I've been working in traditional addiction treatment, um, is that a great, a significant portion of a treatment facility's revenue actually comes from people that are going through treatments over and over again. Um, one treatment facility here in Los Angeles that actually has a very good reputation uh, at one point told us that 100% of the revenue in a month came from uh, referrals back into their program from previous clients or clients leaving a different program to come to theirs. That's wow. pretty staggering. So we do get folks because we are not because we're failing people at such high numbers. Uh, there are people that do come into treatment um, that have been through other treatments. What we hope to do is to make our treatment the last stop. Uh, simply by shifting away from uh, the sort of the current disease model, substance or behavior oriented outcome, more into a humanistic model that 
that approaches folks and, and talks about what is it? What is it that you got uh, from the use that somebody else didn't get that compelled you to use again and again? Okay. Um, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about is this new study. There's a new study that says that those people who are putting on a good game face at work and I'm sorry, but I think all of us do that because there's a stress and pressure to do that. And it's very difficult in in the communications business. Certainly, I work in TV and radio. But everybody I know does this at work, no matter if they're working at, you know, a fast food restaurant or at a gym or at a car dealership. You do have to put that game face on when you're at work because someone's paying you to do a job. And that can lead to if you're really the person that has, you know, that sort of cold fake smile uh, holding the IVAC rolls, you know, not, not doing that, just, just trying to be sort of perfect all the time, that can lead you to abuse, to substance abuse, uh, including excessive drinking uh, and also, I, I would assume, drug use as well. What are your thoughts about that kind of behavior? Because I think it's pretty prevalent in, in this day and age. Well, the, yes, I agree with you. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, we're also dealing with addiction on the rise. But I think what's key here is not whether or not we have to put on a smile as part of the performance of our job. I think it really has more to do with that, that issue of vulnerability. I think there's a lot of people who are quite unhappy uh, with the kind of work they do. They're either underemployed, underpaid, work in abusive environments, um, or the industry that they're in doesn't make much sense to them. Um, those are the Those are the if you look at the study in more detail, that's what it really looks at. It looks at folks that are unhappy and they're spending the lion's share of their day in that environment. Um, and that is, is one of the vulnerability factors that in this study was found to fairly significantly uh, result in, in addiction. So here we're looking at population of folks, so people that are out there that might be listening right now. Um, this is about sort of, how you feel about life and how life is going, and then the, the potential for going towards drinks or drugs or gaming or devices or whatever it might be to give you a break increases because the pain is high. Right. Um, how are people find? like I've just, you know, looked you, you uh, up on Google, uh, Evo, E-V-O, health and wellness, um, are many people coming to you from California or are they pe- people coming from other states as well? No, we get folks from all over the country. Um, and we, we offer services to people from all over the country. Um, so if you want to come in, and obviously our facility, the brick and mortar, is in Venice Beach, California. And so... Not a bad place to be. Our, <laughs> no, not a bad place to be at all. And, uh, and so the folks that are walking in the door typically are living in Los Angeles, or they can come and visit, and we will help people uh, with accommodation. And a large part of the work that I do specifically, and we do, is done by telephone and Skype and video. And part of the reason for that is there are large parts of the world in which um, you are not going to find our kind of treatment. Um, Nobody that's going to be talking in, in the language that we do. So, um, So we do get folks from all over the country that reach out and look for help, and we try to help. Well, uh, certainly, and certainly people, um, you know, this problem, as you said, it's growing, and, and people are relapsing, and, and it's, it's, it's obviously a very difficult situation. Again, uh, Evo Health and Wellness, and there's a lot of information about um, 
you on uh, the World Wide Web. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Rasek, for, for joining us. We certainly appreciate it uh, with uh, Evo Health and Wellness. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. And just a, a final note, if I may, is uh, to encourage folks that may be having a tough time or they know somebody that's having a tough time to send us an email or pick up the phone. We don't charge for that initial consultation. And the consultation is designed to try to help, to actually make a change in that first contact. So uh, you've got nothing to lose, and it's not a sales pitch. It's an attempt to help. All right, great. Thank you so much, sir. We really appreciate your time, and thanks for being so flexible with your time this evening. Oh, no problem. I'm glad I could accommodate. All right, bye-bye. All right. All right. We do have to take a break. Um, we do are going to be joined right after this break by uh, Dr. Michael Tkach. I believe that's the correct pronunciation. He is with a local recovery uh, entity, of course, the well-known Hazelton Betty Ford. And we're going to talk to him about when you know or when you should know that you've got a problem. So keep it right here. You're listening to News Talk 830. And it's 722. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. Well, we were just chatting with uh, Dr. Koresh uh, Rasek, who is with the EVO Health and Wellness. That is a treatment center out in California. Of course, we here have many wonderful treatment centers and none perhaps better known of course, then Hazelton Betty Ford, Dr. Michael DeCash is the director of recovery, and he is joining us there, joining us right now. Uh, Dr. DeCash, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. All right, let me ask you. We, we've been talking about this study that says if you are fake smiling at work uh, and pretending everything's okay, um, you're more likely to perhaps be a substance abuser. What do you think about that? You know, I think there's a lot of pressures that people face to try to put their best selves forward. And there's also a lot of pressures to try to be authentic. And when we're looking at this, with this study, they're specifically looking at when we have these one-time interactions with customers or other individuals, and we try to present ourselves in a way that we feel like we have to stop ourselves. And that inauthenticity can really come at a cost. And so when we look at it, there is talking about how there is a higher likelihood that those individuals would engage in in heavy drinking and a response to that. I think we see that a lot where people are feeling that need to be authentic. And if there's something prohibiting them, it it really can result in them trying to find different ways to cope. Right. Well, and I think I think the pressures on on all of us, you know, are are so great, no matter who you are, or what what you do for your job. I mean, I think everybody has that pressure of feeling that they have to perform, or, or be at a certain, you know, as I said, you have your game face on, and and I think that that can be tough. Let me ask you, in in terms of, um, you know, the the kinds of patients that you're seeing at um, Hazel and Betty Ford, what is it? What proportion are are substance abuse uh, when it comes with alcohol as opposed to drugs? That's a great question. So traditionally, Hazel and Betty Ford had been more focused on providing alcohol treatment when it was first started, but the profile has really shifted in so that we have a, a pretty big balance of alcohol is still primarily the substance that we see, but there's a lot of other substance use that we see as well as now you get poly substance use or people using more than one substance to cope. Um, but alcohol still remains probably about 60 to 70% of what we're, we're treating mostly. But we also have, again, uh, individuals that are struggling with other substances as well. And, and what is, 
what is the relapse rate? Because we just talked to somebody who was trying to go in a different, slightly different direction out in California with his rehab facility. What is the rehab, relapse rate? Um, or I suppose that's the word that's used. Um, because I know, I know that it's high because I, I know it's very difficult. Right. And so one of the things we, we look at with, with turn to use or a relapse rate is there are different studies that would say that it's anywhere from 50 to 80 percent. Wow. But one of the things that we're looking at is the way that we conceptualize substance use treatment. Now, historically, it's been kind of treated as an acute type of thing that somebody goes to treatment for. A lot of times people think of 28 days and whatnot. And it's been treated kind of like an acute condition where you get treated and you go out into the world and good luck and let us know if you need anything. But we're really working on changing that. And this is where recovery management and really looking at the long-term recovery process and viewing substance use as a chronic disorder. And if we look at the return to use rates with substance use and we look at like noncompliance with things like insulin, with diabetes, or with diet, exercise, and heart medication with any type of cardiac issue, we're looking at those rates being actually really relatively the same. And so there's this stigma and there's this idea about substance use and that return to use that people look at and they say, wow, that must mean that like it's, you know, they're, they're, it's just hopeless or X, Y, or Z. And it's not necessarily the case. We just have to change the way that we're looking at substance use and treatment and really think about how do we give people continuous support. So so, um, so you're saying that, mm-hmm. that, that the rates of, of, of are, are similar to those who might have be on heart medication or diabetes and, and slip off their, their treatment plans? Exactly. Wow. So when, you look, when you look at that, if somebody's going to the doctor and let's say they're, they have a good appointment because they're, they have a cardiac issue or they're insulin. Uh, they need insulin for diabetes. If they go back in, their doctor's not going to say, wow, you really failed that treatment. Um, this this didn't work. You know, come back later when you're ready. Yet there is that mentality that still sometimes exists when people think about substance use treatment. They think about if there's a return to use that that's suddenly a failure. And we, we need to really change that mindset instead of looking at that return to use as a failure and instead see it as those are the symptoms coming back. And we need right. to look at, are they at the right level of care? Are there other supports that are, are out there? Um, one of the things that, that when we look at substance use, it really changes the way that the brain functions. And when I was doing neuropsych assessments, we had follow people that would have concussions for, for two years because we we're looking at the, brain, the change that happens in the brain. It, it takes a long time. And when we then start thinking about the amount of time that people traditionally have spent in substance use treatment, we're talking short term, usually 28 days, right. and then there's some follow-up, maybe some outpatient or whatnot. We're not looking at it where people are getting those supports for that extended period of time while they're still going through all those changes. Now, the answer isn't that everybody needs to be in a higher level of care that entire time, but what are the other supports that are there? Are there things in the community that they're engaged in? Are there uh, groups that they're going yeah. to? Are there sponsors or supports or people that are helping them stay engaged and stay supported so that treatment stays, you know, and sobriety and, and their their recovery journey stays a focus and emphasis yeah. in their lives. This is so interesting. And, and I, I I do want to warn you that we do have to, doctor, we do have to take a special report at 731 um, yep. from CBS News on, on a fatal shooting uh, at a synagogue out in California. But I, I, what you're saying is so interesting. So are you saying that this the addiction changes the mind and, and the brain chemistry or the brain in general and that you know, just a 28-day recovery is, isn't going to do it 
that it, it takes a long time for the brain to recover? Right. Well, we want to, we're changing the way that we look at this. And this actually started back in the 1950s with looking at it as a chronic disease and saying, okay, how do we change the way that we approach treatment and give people supports? It's, you, somebody wouldn't go to the doctor for diabetes and, and say, oh, here's your insulin, good luck, let us know if you need anything. There's the follow-up appointments, there's other things, and, and family that's changing their diet and helping them out. And we want to make sure that people are looking at substance use because it's really no different. Wow, okay. And, and how long do, can the, does the brain change back? That's a great question. All the way? Is that like a dumb question? (laughs) No, not a dumb question. It's a brilliant question, and it's one that a lot of people ask and wonder about. And there's a lot of factors that go into it. It's called brain plasticity. And when somebody's brain kind of changes, there is, depending on how much has happened, how much change there's been, will determine how far it goes back to to the way it was beforehand. Um, But length of use and the amount of use and everything else could affect how long that takes and and whether it gets back to that state or or if it gets to a different state. Okay. Well, that that is fascinating. Listen, um, Dr. Dukash, I'm going to have to have you on again because I think this is really interesting. This is you're you're sort of talking about some areas that that I've never heard before. Um, uh, Dr. Michael Dukash, Director of Recovery Management at Hazelton Betty Ford. Thank you so much for your time. All right, folks, Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock on a Saturday evening. Hope you are doing well. Hope our friends in southern Minnesota that got some snow this morning, hope you are warming up. Hope that it's melted. I'm sorry it's too late for snow. And hope you are listening. Hope you're having a good time. I'll be on with you until 9 o'clock. This half hour, we're going to talk about a spring topic. Uh, It is called Community Supported Agriculture, CSA. And it's a really cool thing. Uh, It's really taken off. But still, there are a lot of people, including our fabulous producer, Devin, who did not know what a CSA is. It's Community Supported Agriculture. And that's why we have Sharon Peroni on. And Sharon, first of all, am I saying your name correctly? You are. Sharon Peroni. Okay, great. You are a graduate research assistant with the Applied Applied Plant Science at the University of Minnesota. First of all, what is community-supported agriculture? Um, well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for having me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, sure. Um, and the opportunity to talk about this. It's really fun. Um, and the USDA definition of CSA is that um, community-supported agriculture consists of a community of individuals who pledge support to a farm operation so that the farmland becomes either legally or spiritually the community's farm, with the growers and consumers providing mutual support and sharing the risks and benefits of food production. So to kind of summarize that um, a little bit more, or simply, the idea is that the community is sharing in both the risks and the rewards of farming. Um, and it works kind of like a subscription. So the idea is that um, if you're participating in a CSA, you would purchase your shares up front at the beginning of the season. And this is really important for a farmer because they have a lot of upfront costs in the beginning of the season and really punctuated cash flows. Um, so the idea is that you pay at the beginning of the season, and then as a member, you receive um, a weekly or biweekly share of whatever the farm is producing. Right. And, and so how can people find out about CSAs? Because this is really growing here, isn't it? It is. Yeah, there's actually quite a number of CSAs here in Minnesota. Um, 
so a couple of good resources are minnesotagrown.com. There are search options there for finding a CSA near you, and that's, um, that's run by the USDA, so they keep a pretty good tab on what's happening in the state. And there are at least 84 CSA farms, according to the Minnesota Grown website, with 68 different pickup sites across the state. And um, in- encompassed in that is about 40 farms that actually deliver to the Twin Cities area alone. Um, if you want to find specifically those Twin Cities area ones, the Land Stewardship Project is a really great nonprofit group of um, farmers and farmer resources here in Minnesota. And uh, you can actually find a list of those 40 that deliver to the Twin Cities on their website as well. Um, and in order, when you sign up, um, you basically sign up for a share or a half share of produce, but it's gotten so it, it, it's expanded now into things like honey and maybe even meats and some kinds of things like that, right? Yes, it has actually. There's all kinds of CSAs for all different um, artists and products. It's primarily a farming operation, um, from what I understand, from what I've seen. But if you are interested in some other products, there are things like honey, for example, as you mentioned. Um, in the meat industry, typically what a grower would do is um, offer up to their patrons, for example, a whole cow or a half cow, and you could purchase that at the beginning of the season and sort of follow the story of that animal. And then you would receive that bulk meat throughout the season in different cuts. Right. And um, so the, the website is Minnesota Grown, all spelled out directory, and you can search for a CSA community-supported agricultural farm. So you're saying that this also helps out um, and 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 Traditionally, either you can go to the farm, each each farm does it differently, but you can go to the farm and and pick it up or else they can drop off. They'll have a drop off point, you know, somewhere in your area where you can pick up the basket of vegetables or fruits and fruits and vegetables. Uh, So it kind of varies by different farm. Um, what, What are you're saying that this actually helps the farmers as well because it gives them some cash up front? Mm hmm. Exactly. Right. And, and that, that's got to be difficult as well. Um, why do you think that this has caught on so much and that there are a lot more CSAs now than there used to be? I think that, um, well, for one, I think that a lot of them have been under the radar for a long time and have supported sort of specifically their local community because there is a long history of CSAs in Minnesota in particular. Um, But I would say that some of the expansion is due to um, increase in technology and social media use for a wider reach of folks. And I would also say that farms are really interested in engaging their patrons in a new way. And so some of the things that you can do if you're a CSA member, depending on the farm, is that you might have an opportunity to actually volunteer on the farm and get to know a little bit more about what's actually happening and, and help participate in the things that you're that you're um, eating. You can help participate in growing them. And they also have some options potentially like pick your own where you can come out and pick raspberries or strawberries or something like that. Um, there might also be, for example, at the end of a season, uh, harvest potluck for all the CSA members to come out to the farm and, and share and celebrate that harvest. And so there's lots of different ways that you as a community member can be involved in the farm. Um, I would also say that a lot of shares now also contain really fun and interesting foods that a lot of folks might not 
uh, be familiar with or find in the grocery stores. And then included in those shares when you have something interesting or new are often uh, recipes and fun ideas, fun ways to prepare that food and to share that food, um, as well as sometimes the history of the crop or the farm and updates on what's going on. So there's ways to really build a community through the CSA. And I would argue that um, CSA members sort of become part of the human and ecological community around food production in that area. Right. So I think it's a really great way to be involved. And it looks like I'm just you know clicking on I'm at your website, Minnesota Grown, and then I kind of clicked on one uh, that delivers the Lunds and Byerleys and it's Axdolls out in Stillwater. And, you know, I can see, you know, what, what they supply over the course of the summer into the fall. And it includes, as, as you mentioned, obviously things that, that we're familiar with, like like potatoes and strawberries, sweet corn, tomatoes. I think most people are, are pretty familiar with having those in their kitchen, broccoli, beans, asparagus. But then there are things like, and, and maybe some of us listening out there are, are, are better than I am, but kohlrabi. <laughs> and I, you know, and I'm, I, now I'm trying to remember because I remember my mother talking about kohlrabi, uh, you know, the vegetables that you may not or, or aren't familiar with and, and certainly don't use with that you probably wouldn't pick up at the grocery store, but suddenly they're there and, and mm-hmm. I think it encourages you to eat them, which, which is kind of exactly. cool. Yeah, exactly. Um, is, in terms of, um, you know, the status of farming, has this encouraged, you know, people to go into farming just that this is another option out there for them? You know, that's a really good question and I'm not sure I'm equipped to answer that one. Um, I think that we are seeing a resurgence in folks entering small-scale diversified vegetable production, um, and definitely in the state of Minnesota. I think that this uh, this state has a real history and legacy of um, of connection to the land and and community as well. And so I think that part of that is what we're seeing. Um, and so I'm not sure if it's the CSA specifically, but I, okay. I definitely think that there's a renewed interest in, in building community through the land. Okay. And, and then I, I got to tell you this, your website, this website is Minnesota grown all written out is really cool. So I, as I just said, I, you know, I just kind of clicked around and, you know, got to this one farm from Stillwater and mm-hmm. then saw that they clicked kohlrabi. And I was trying to remember exactly what was that taste or whatever. And then I clicked the kohlrabi and you've got how many recipes for kohlrabi? Um, roasted kohlrabi, kohlrabi bread, a wonderful-looking kohlrabi soup, squash uh-huh. and kohlrabi empanadas, kohlrabi oh, and, and <laughs> apple. You know, uh, mashed kohlrabi and, and potatoes. I mean, it's um, I, wow. I mean, this is this is it clicks clicks to an all recipe kohlrabi and par- parsley sauce. I mean, this is. Uh, more, much more than I expected in, in terms of, oh, of yeah. what's there. That, that's really cool. Yeah, and there's one more thing that I wanted to mention, actually, especially with the diversity of, of fruits and vegetables that you might find in a CSA, and that's that CSAs can actually also be an opportunity for um, for social justice. It can be an avenue for social justice. And so there are actually a lot of um, immigrant and migrant farmer communities that have uh, started CSAs or come together to build cooperatives um, to access new markets through CSAs. And a lot of these um, have culturally relevant uh, foods that they're producing as well. And so I just want to call some of them out um, to let folks know about them. There's one, uh, these all deliver to the Twin Cities, but one is the Shared Ground Cooperative. Another is Big River Farms out in Marine on St. Croix. And then the Good Acre as well. That's a, that's a food hub that's actually near the St. Paul campus at the University of Minnesota. Um, and they aggregate food from a number of uh, minority growers in Minnesota. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and, and do some of these, is there a range of produce that, that is grown by some of these different um, 
ones or the social justice ones might cater more to like a certain ethnic group or, you know, focus on a certain heritage of cooking? Yep, exactly. Um, and I should mention, for example, the Hmong American Farmers Association also has a CSA, and a lot of the folks there are producing um, traditional Hmong uh, cultivars. Okay. And and let me, you know, just overall, do you have any idea, and we're, ch- we're chatting with uh, Sharon Peroni, she's a graduate research assistant at the Applied Plant Science University of Minnesota. Um, I, I guess, you know, for those of us kind of in the moment here, you know, it did snow this morning in our one, for our wonderful friends uh, <laughs> in southern Minnesota. I mean, is, is this going to be a slower season or is this kind of normal or we just have our blinders on? We forget what it's like every spring that it takes a while to warm up. Sure. Yeah. Unfortunately, this is fairly normal. Um, I think that we might have some challenges this year with the amount of snow that we've had this winter in terms of flooding. So it might be uh, that we're getting into the fields a little bit later. But what I will say is that a lot of CSAs around the state, actually, uh, a lot of those farms have what's called a high tunnel, which is sort of like a large um, unheated greenhouse, for example. And because they are protected from the elements, they heat up faster and they're sort of protected from that flooding in a lot of cases. And so um, what they tend to do is they help extend the season on either end. And so we might still see some really good CSA produce coming early in the season for folks that have those high tunnels. And we are seeing an increase in those high tunnels in Minnesota. Okay, because it's still not, I mean, it's just... You know, there were just a few buds on my trees like a few days ago, you know, and I was like, oh, this is so great. It's so exciting. And you can't help but think uh, of the poor farmers who are trying to, um, you know, uh, do that. What, what, What do you think is the thing that surprises people most about CSAs? Um, I think just the diversity of new things that you can eat that you haven't been exposed to previously. Um, There's just all kinds of fun things. You never know what you're going to get in the box. I mean, you have some idea if you are familiar with the the seasonality of eating, but I think that it's just really fun to to learn and internalize that seasonality and um, experience it firsthand through the, the fun things that you get to eat. Okay. And is this sponsored by the state of Minnesota or is this just sort of a program that, that, the U runs independently? Um, so it, neither, what I would say, is um, CSAs are typically, um, it, it's just a model for, oh, okay. for production and marketing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, all right. Well, the, the, the website is Minnesota Grown, and it's, it's actually, it's a really, really cool website. I mean, it's just uh, got all kinds of different, you know, the CSAs, the pickup spots, um, and then what is the average cost? Do you have a breakdown on that? Um, it really depends on the farm, but for a full share, for a full season, typically between, I would say, maybe four and $600. Right. And this is, you're talking about a lot that you would get with a full share. I mean, we're talking yes. a full box. I mean, you know, $400 sounds like a lot, but it's a lot of food. Uh, it is quite a bit. It's it's quite a bit of food, um, and it's all fresh produce and um, sometimes, you know, breads and, and baked goods. Sometimes, you know, it depends on, on, on the different CSA, but you're not talking about a small amount here. I mean, it's it's a generous amount, quite definitely. Um, yep, it's typically for a family of four. For a family of four, exactly. And I know a lot, and oftentimes, too, you can split it, right, mm-hmm. or, or else you can split it just, you know, either through the CSA or else you can split it um, perhaps with a neighbor or whatever uh, because it is so much. And it's, exactly. Yeah. Yep. It's kind of like and having... I want to mention, too, 
Yeah, some programs like the Good Acre actually have student shares available at a subsidized cost. Um, So if you are thinking that it's cost prohibitive because you're in that sort of situation, um, I just want to throw that out there because that's a really good option as well. Or else if you're not a family of four, if you're a single person or you've got a roommate or whatever, I mean, it, it, it uh, you know, not, not everybody has that many mouths to feed. So sure. uh, a, lot, a lot of options here, but it is really cool. And we want to support our Minnesota farmers. And I, I can't wait to get start getting that fresh Minnesota produce. <laughs> this is we're a little, little, little ways <laughs> away here. I know the farmer's know. markets uh, start, started uh, in the Twin Cities today, but obviously they're selling produce for the most part, unless they've got the greenhouses uh, that has not been produced here. But uh, soon, folks, soon. Hang on. Uh, it's going to happen. <laughs> All right. Uh, Sharon Peroni, um, she is a graduate research assistant uh, with the Applied Plant Science Department at the University of Minnesota. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, folks. All right, we are going to take a break. You are listening to News Talk 830. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. Coming up in our nine or 8 o'clock hour, we will have uh, Professor Stephen Shear talk. We'll talk politics with him. Obviously, the big development in the uh, presidential race is Joe Biden entering the race. Joe Biden uh, has the lead in almost all of the polls. Some of the individual states, I think some New Hampshire polls have Bernie Sanders out front, but he does have a commanding lead. Uh, the question is... Uh, Will that hold up? Uh, And I know it seems like it's a ways away, but it's not that far away. Uh, 18 months away, uh, obviously the president gearing up. The president actually is going to be in Green Bay, Wisconsin tonight for a political rally. He's gearing up Wisconsin, obviously the prime, one of the prime battlegrounds. Uh, Wisconsin infamously one of the states that Hillary Clinton did not, never visited during the 2016 election. But we're going to chat with um, Professor Stephen Shear about um, the latest in the presidential race, what he thinks, uh, the ongoing controversy surrounding the Mueller report, uh, the push for impeachment of the president, which is not getting enormous support from all Democrats. Um, the only Minnesota Democrat that is pushing for it at this point is Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. Uh, other Democrats, including uh, Nancy Pelosi, are holding off and saying, let's just wait uh, and see and let's take it to the general election because we'd like to see what happens. We'd like to see um, what kinds of votes uh, come in. And we think that the president is vulnerable. The president, of course, thinking that he is going to be able to pull off another victory. And he acknowledges that a lot of people didn't see him winning. A lot of his own supporters, his own aides, say he did not really think he was going to win. And he did win. And and he won with with an extraordinary victory in in three states where he was not expected to win. He won in Wisconsin, he won in Michigan, and he won in Pennsylvania. Uh, And he won in those states by pretty slim majorities. But by winning in those states, he was able to pull in the electoral college votes in those states, and that put him over the top in the electoral college, especially those larger states of Michigan and Pennsylvania. However, you can't count Wisconsin out. Wisconsin was critical, (laughs) critical, folks. Wisconsin, you're going to get the love this time around because people are going to come and see you and visit you. I know that you've already gotten a a bunch of campaign stops 
uh, from some presidential candidates. You're going to continue to do that, and you're going to continue to get it right through the general election. No one is going to make that mistake again. No one is going to ignore Wisconsin, folks. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I also thought it was very interesting that, uh, and I'll chat about this with Professor Stephen Shear, that uh, when Joe Biden was deciding where he was going to set up his headquarters, most people do it in their home state. And Joe Biden, of course, you know, represented Del- Delaware for decades in the United States Senate. Uh, and so one would think that he would set up his headquarters in the state of Delaware. But Delaware is a pretty small state. It's one of the smallest states in the entire country. So where does he set up his headquarters? Well, he sets it up just outside Philadelphia. He sets it up in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, of course, if you know your geography, is right next door to Delaware. So he can claim that he's still sort of there, that the media market for Philadelphia actually goes into Delaware. and. Um, it's also where Joe Biden grew up. He grew up in, in northwestern or northeastern, excuse me, Pennsylvania, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, a blue collar area that, of course, that area went for Donald Trump. So it's, it's very interesting, the battlegrounds that Joe Biden is picking up. Will he be able to hold his own against uh, some challengers, including uh, the, uh, the mayor of uh, South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg, who's doing extremely well? So we are going to talk about all of that with my next guest. He is coming up in our next hour. He is Professor Stephen Shear of Carleton College. So keep it here at News Talk 830. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t 